Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. Do you ever find yourself thrown into a lifestyle of activity-driven exhaustion? Do you deeply crave rest and peace in the midst of it all? God established Sabbath, rest, at the creation of the world, and Jesus promised rest for our souls, yet we don't seem to find it. In this series, we learn how to embrace the Sabbath in our lives. If you'd like to visit and attend in person, come join our services on weekends, Saturday at 5 or Sundays, 9 and 1030. We are the pirates, so don't do anything. We just stay at home and lie around. And if you ask us to do anything, we'll just tell you. We don't do anything. Well, I've never been to Greenland and I've never been to Denver. And I've never buried treasure in St. Louis or St. Paul. And I've never been to Moscow and I've never been to Tampa. the poop deck and I never fear to starboard cause I never sail at all and I've never walked the gangplank and I've never owned that ferret and I've never been to Boston in the fall and I'm here with the pirates to say we all just need to slow down to sit around and don't do anything. Well, sorta. We're gonna talk about rest today. And I'm gonna introduce this sermon with two introductions because I think there's an introduction, an introduction that belongs in pre-pandemic uh, church life and an introduction that belongs in post-pandemic. God willing, we're getting there. And so the first introduction goes like this, let's say 2019. If you live in 21st century America, you listen to people say how busy they are all the time. How you doing? Busy. So busy. Crazy busy. Most everyone I know, crazy busy. And it's a, it's a boast more than it is a complaint, really. It, busyness is the existential hedge against emptiness in our culture. It's the, um, it's the uh, one statement that can give your life some self-importance. Of course your life isn't trivial if it's booked every hour of every day. The problem is that the busy life has not proven to be the abundant life. In fact, what the busy life keeps doing is adding new words into our psychological lexicons. 2019, there was a new phrase that came out called hurry sickness. Perhaps you've heard of it. Here's the definition. Hurry sickness is a behavior, a 
pattern that characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness and overwhelming and continual sense of urgency. It's malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when there's any kind of delay. Here are the symptoms. Take your pulse. Moving from one checkout line to another because it looks shorter or faster. <laughs> Counting the cars in front of you and either getting in the lane that has the least or going the fastest. Multitasking to the point of forgetting one of the tasks. Accidentally putting your clothes on inside out or backwards. By the way, that may or may not be hurry sickness for some of us. Sleeping in your daytime clothes to save time in the morning. I don't know. Uh, hurry sickness. That's one. There's another that came into our psychological lexicon called sunset fatigue. Sunset fatigue is when you are so drained and tired and preoccupied that when you come home, your family, your friends, they just get your leftovers. You've really nothing more to give. You are spent. Uh, I read a, a book not long ago called In Praise of Slowness by Carl Honore, and he talked about being at an airport, reading the paper, and coming across an advertisement for this book, One Minute Bedtime Stories. That's the classic bedtime stories, you know, condensed down to sound bites. And Carl talks about this tension that he felt inside because on the one hand, wouldn't it be great to get the kids down quicker and sooner so that he could get on with his busy things he needs to get done or more likely his shows or his sports. But on the other hand, knowing that if he were to go down that route, that he'd sacrifice a deeper connection to his own son. In fact, shortening his parenting would shorten his son's childhood. And so he wrestled with that tension and he'd even being tempted to one-minute bedtime stories. Let's check yourself. Take your pulse. Sunset fatigue. Do you find yourself rushing even when there's no reason to rush? There's an underlying tension that causes sharp words or petty quarrels. You set up mock races. Okay, kids, let's see you can take a bath the fastest. That are really about your own need to get through it. You sense a loss of gratitude and wonder. You indulge in self-destructive escapes from fatigue, abusing alcohol, watching too much media, listening to country and western music. Okay, I added that last one. I just want to be sure you're listening. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it is an oxymoron though. Uh, moving right along. Now, that was the introduction in 2019. Busy, busy, Busy is us. 2020, a worldwide pandemic. What happened to us? We are the pirates who don't do anything. We just stay at home and lie around. Have you reflected yet on what the last year has done to you? how it's changed your habits, how it's changed your personality. David Brooks, the columnist for the New York Times, he did. And it's a great column. It's from April 1st, if you want to go back and get it. I just have a soundbite for you from it. David Brooks writes, I've been exceptionally lucky in family and in health and can speak only about the effects of isolation rather than the disease itself or the coronavirus. 
I'd say the most underappreciated effect has been the accumulation of absences, the joys we missed rather than the blows we received. My favorite sound is people laughing around a table at a bar late at night. That has been absent for a year, and I would hate to see a chart that tracked how many times Americans laughed each day, 2019 versus 2020. There are all the concerts we didn't go to, the plays and dinner parties we didn't enjoy. Few of us got to experience the delight of finding ourselves in a social set we knew nothing about. This is a loss, and I love this phrase, of emotional nutrition. It manifests as loneliness. 36% of Americans, including 61% of young adults, report serious loneliness, according to a survey by the Making Caring Common Project at Harvard. Busy, 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 or the isolated pirates who don't do anything. We find ourselves in seasons of our lives on both of those extremes. God saw this coming 4,000 years ago. Knowing our frame and our canvas, He spoke this, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Rest. Rest has to be an important, planned, prioritized part of our life or we end up pirate or sunset fatigued. So today, let's talk about rest. Rest is two things. According to the Scriptures, it is stop and it is story. Both of those words, stop and story, come from two texts in the First Testament which describe the commandment to remember the Sabbath. So we want to look at both of those. Let's first look at stop, and then we'll look at spate, at uh, story. The first one is from Exodus chapter 20. It's the fourth commandment in the top ten. Let me read it. You please follow along. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but He rested on the seventh Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, before we take a deeper dive into what remember the Sabbath and keep it holy means, just a couple of hovering observations. First, you will notice as you compare it to all the other nine commandments, remember the Sabbath gets the most words. It's the longest explained commandment of the ten. Perhaps because God knew that making space for Him in our busy lives would be one of the most challenging things we need do. It's just rather interesting that God has more to say about Sabbath keeping than He does adultery and murder and idolatry. Perhaps it has something to do with maybe the fourth commandment being the most neglected commandment. 
Think on these things. The second hovering observation is this. Do you notice how culture-shaping it is? I mean, it goes to every person in the house, every animal, every place in the house. This was to dramatically transform a household. Let me put it this way. Can you imagine the impact of uh, you and your household living a 24-6 lifestyle in a culture of 24-7 lifestyle. Can you imagine how you would stand out? Can you imagine your neighbor seeing you practice Sabbath that they would be so interested and maybe drawn to this day that you practice that, who knows, maybe they could end up at your table on the Sabbath. It's just rather interesting how countercultural it is. Those are some broad looks. Now let's drill down. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Sabbath means stop. Cease. It's a stop sign on the street of days. Stop. Stop your work. Stop the striving. Stop the activities. Stop. Remember is in the most active Hebrew verb tense, which means you do it again and again and again. It's your lifestyle. It's something that you have made a rhythm of your life. Not just once or twice or when you remember. No, it's a regular, disciplined part of your existence. Remember the stop and keep it holy. Holy means to be set apart. It means to treat the day and make it different than all the other days. It's like... A birthday. It's like if you're married, an anniversary. You don't wake up on your anniversary and say, oh, today's our anniversary. We should do something. If you do that, you're in trouble. It's a day that you want to make different than other days. And you do that by planning, people, food, activities. It's a special use day. Now, here's what's even more interesting. You're looking at the text. Why should you have one day a week in your life like this? Because in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Actually, I want to take us back to the creation account. Look at it in Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And the seventh day God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day He, what? Rested from all His work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it He, what? Rested from all the work of creating that He had done. Now, why did God rest? He did not rest, as I heard one preacher put it, because on Sunday, he uh, wanted to separate the light and the darkness, so he filled out a requisition form, turned in the papers, and said, oh, this paperwork's draining, looked at what he's done, and said, it'll do. And then he got to Tuesday, and he decided to separate the landmass from the water, and he made it flat and functional, like Kansas, and he said, man, this physical labor is hard. He looked at what he'd done, said, it'll do. Then he got the Friday and Saturday, and he made the pigeon for the skies and the uh, uh, cat (laughs) 
for the, for the dry ground, and he made the carp for the ponds. And he said, man, this animal husbandry is hard work. Enough of this. He looked at what he'd done. All the creative juices spent, he said, it'll do. And then on Friday at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he punched his card, left work, and said, thank me it's Friday. Is that how it reads in Genesis 1? Have you read Genesis 1 lately? No! Man, Genesis 1 is a poem of beauty and power. It's throbbing with wow, and it is do it again, do it again. You cannot read Genesis 1 and not think to yourself that this God of uh, of whose my creator is the most joyful being in the universe. We see this even in the life of his son, Jesus, when he came to live with us. Jesus, hard as his life was, did you notice this? He was always surrounding himself with the most joyful people. Do you know who the most joyful people are? Children. They are primary residents of the realm of joy. And so Jesus is always saying, let him come, let him come. Children, they have this ability to turn banality into beauty. Uh, I remember years ago when we were uh, pastoring in New England, took the Honda CRV into the Honda dealer to get serviced. Well, about 10 of us there in the waiting area. And uh, there was this father and his, I would guess his four-year-old daughter and his two-year-old daughter. The four-year-old daughter says to her dad, hey, uh, dad, I need, daddy, I need to go to the bathroom. And she wanted to go by herself, down the hall a little ways. And I just enjoyed watching this love and logic moment play out between a father and a child. And the father, he, he, was, he was exceptional. He worked this out, negotiated well. What they would do is she would go in by herself, go into the restroom, and they would stand outside the door, the father and the two-year-old. She comes out of the bathroom, and the two-year-old shouts. So all of us could hear, you did it! You did it! Take a bow! <laughs> G.K. Chesterton, he said, because children have abounding vitality, because they are fierce and free, they want things repeated and unchanged. And they say, do it again! Do it again! until the adult is about to die. Because adults are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But maybe God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. And maybe God says to the sun every day, do it again! And to the moon, do it again! And maybe it's not automatic necessity that every daisy is made alike. Maybe God enjoys making each daisy separately. Maybe God has the eternal appetite of childhood. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we are. Why did God rest? He rested to be our model. Why did God want to model taking one day and seven and saying, stop? Because that 
is how eternity invades our present. That is how joy works its way into our existence through the repeated, do it again, do it again. That's an experience of eternity. Stop. Slow down. Let's say three miles an hour. Do you know what three miles an hour is? That's the speed of a human being walking. And every day at the cool of the day, God wants to take a walk with you. Can you set aside a day? Stop. Let the heavens come down. Now, I forgot to mention earlier that this is actually part one of a two-part sermon. This is going to be a long sermon over two weeks. Uh, next week, Elliot Campbell is going to come and he's going to talk about how to practice rest. How to do the Sabbath. So next week's going to be very practical. We want to invite you back. Hope you can come back. Uh, those of you at home, come back. And um, he's going to talk about how we do the Sabbath. But at the risk of stealing his thunder, I do want to give two very practical things here. As you think about stop, first, Sabbath day, whatever day you choose, it does need to be planned. You don't just fall into Sabbath. You need to think ahead. You need to be asking yourself, what's my soul hungry for? What do I need? You need to ask it about your family if, you, if you're a family, or maybe your friend group. What do we need as a family? What's been missing? How can we invite God into our week this week? Plan. Second thing, rituals. You know, I've been in ministry long enough now. I've done hundreds of funerals. I've looked back over hundreds of lives from the point of death forward for them. And do you know what in every tribute you hear again and again and again as a person who's leaving a legacy, what they're remembered for? Rituals. Every Friday night, we used to do this. My dad and I, we used to do that. Rituals. Do it again and again and again. That's the experience of eternity. I'm asking you, what rituals are you leaving behind for your family, for your friends? What rituals are you creating in your... That's part of Sabbath keeping. So, Sabbath is stop. And Sabbath is story. The second place the command is given is 40 years later, Israel sitting on the edge of the promised land, and Moses goes back through the commandments again. But notice as I read it, if you notice something different about the second time. So, fourth commandment, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. So far, pretty similar. Notice this though, verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, 
and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Notice this time, the commandment is tied to a story. What story? The story of God rescuing Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. He's saying that the Sabbath day needs to be a reenactment. For 400 years, you didn't have a Sabbath. You were a cog in the wheel of Pharaoh's production. You had to work to stay alive. But God came down with a mighty hand and the blood of the Lamb. And He set you free. He set your soul free. He set your life free. He saved you. And every week on Sabbath, I want you to reenact that story. You need that story. For generations to come, that will fuel your movement as my people. The story. And you know what? We still need that story. Why? Because at work, because we spend so much time there, we're susceptible to the blistering of our identity through modern work. That is work taking over our heart. That is being enslaved to work. You know, even our culture is beginning to figure some of this out. Uh, and th- another new word added to the psychological lexicon, workism. In the Atlantic Monthly, I think it was 2019, around there, Derek Thompson wrote, uh, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. But everybody worships something. Workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is, necess- what is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. Homo industrious. We need the story because we are susceptible to work being our Savior. How does that happen? Well, it happens when we look to work to gain verdicts. To have someone say, man, you're good. And when we work to do that, it can take over our identity and our heart. And ultimately, though, fall short and disappoint us. Some of us look to work to create significance in our lives. And that's good. That's a good thing. We get a lot of significance from our work. But if that's the main reason you work, you are going to be let down because work cannot do that for you, create significance. And I think we look to work at times to build our identity. We become what we do. And that's how we're identified. And again, work cannot carry that. Enough to fill and satisfy our heart. We need to be immersed in the story. And what's the story? That Jesus came to set our hearts free from sin so that we can look to Him to gain our verdict. And you know what the verdict is? In me, you are declared righteous. His opinion is the only opinion of you that counts. And when Jesus comes into our work, 
He creates significance for us. We begin to realize that we are part of His kingdom. So that every moment we live, every encounter we have with another human being, every good work we do, it's in the advance of His kingdom. And what's that called? Significance. And through the Jesus story, that's our identity. As many as believed in Him, He gave them the power to become the children of God. You and I, following Jesus, are His children, which means we have intimacy with the Father. Abba, Father. We have access, 24-7 access to the God of the universe. And we have security such that no matter what happens, if our world's turned upside down, this is my Father's world. You see, the Jesus story takes care of the work beneath the work. And we don't have to do that work beneath the work. We don't have to look to work to be our Savior. We can live in Jesus and work. Not live to work. That's the Sabbath. You know how we reimmerse ourselves in the story week after week? It's called church. <laughs> it's called worship. It's called being here. And hearing the Scriptures read and partaking of the cup and the bread and singing praises to the living God and being reminded of His kingdom and the story we're in, the definition of reality, and going out in the hub and having conversations about how we're doing, how our week's gone, what we're struggling with, what's encouraged us. You see, every time we gather we reimmerse ourselves in the story. And it's those things, doing those that point beyond the rent and the groceries and the college tuition and the retirement plans, and rather points to the eternal certainty that God is on the throne. And the humanity is not at the center of all things, but God is at the center of all things. And so we gather to be re-immersed in the story. So, practically what I'm saying, whatever your Sabbath is, corporate worship and community life needs to be a part of that. That's why I think most Christians would say that at least a part of their Sabbath rest includes Sundays and, or Saturday nights, corporate worship, re-immersion in the story. So Sabbath is stop and it's story. Jesus practiced Sabbath just like his father. And one time in Mark chapter 2, Jesus was practicing Sabbath. He was fellowshipping with his disciples. They were walking three miles per hour. And his disciples started to take some grain and eat it. And evidently, the pastors were standing along the fields and watching people to make sure they weren't um, breaking the Sabbath. It reminds me, I lived in Del Rio, Texas for a year as an Air Force brat and was part of a really uh, fundamentalist Baptist church where the pastor used to sit outside the drive-in theater to make sure none of his parishioners were going to the movies. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And um, they say, Jesus, your disciples, they're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus, <laughs> this is why we can't just say he was a good teacher and a decent man. I mean, he made some bodacious claims. 
He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, that whole thing about creation and the seventh day and God rested, that was me. That was me. I was there at the creation of the world. That was my fabric. Do you know what he's saying as well? That if you want that kind of rest where heaven comes down and eternity enters your heart, it's me. I can give your heart that rest so that you no longer have to do the work beneath the work. You can be forgiven. You can be promised resurrection. And you will have my presence every moment of your life. I can give you that. And with Augustine in the 5th century, we say, my heart was restless until it found its rest in thee. Today, I don't know what brought you here today. We're so glad you came. But one of the things that we often do at Waterstone is create just a quick space in the service for you to respond to Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never actually said to Him, I want that rest. Jesus, I want You to come into my life. I want You to give me forgiveness. And I want You to, to live going forward with that promise of resurrection. I need You. Bring that rest to my heart. So in the quietness of this moment, I'm just going to pause for a minute and just give you an opportunity and space to say, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life.